Hello, and thank you again for joining us. Today, we have another uh, conversation in which we are talking about attachment. And we have Dr. Darsha Narvais here, in which she is discussing attachment in light of her 2014 book entitled Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality. We have all heard about attachment, and it has gotten a lot of press in the recent uh, few years. But what does attachment show for us now? And what are some of the most advanced theories that are talking about attachment? Thank you for being here, Dr. Narvaez. Thank you so much, Mary. Good to be with you. Yeah. So I see here in your 2014 book, you're talking about attachment. So what is attachment? Well, attachment theory is uh, something that's just been discovered to be critically important for children's development. Before maybe the mid-20th century or so, the, the dominant theories about child development were psychoanalytic Freudian theory, where, you know, mothers really just provide the food mm. <laughs> and not much else, uh, or behaviorist theories, where you just condition your child to be a certain way, like a rat. You know, you, oh, interesting. you, uh, you know, pat them on the head at night and don't hug them too much or they'll get spoiled because... You know, it's not good for them to expect, you know, certain behaviors from you. But those things, it turns out, didn't work. Those Hmm. theories were at a loss to explain why orphans from World War II were so devastated by being separated from their parents, even though they were getting fed. And they were, you know, had warmth, uh, you know, nourishment and shelter and clothing and all the basic physiological needs were being met. Mm -hmm. And so John Bowlby... Uh, psychoanalytic theorist and therapist in England uh, was uh, mobilized by the World Health Organization to examine what was going on. And so he ended up coming up with a theory of attachment, which is explaining why food and warmth and physical needs being met are not enough. So we see before John Bowlby, many of the theories that were dominating psychology and medicine and understanding why children are the way they are, were really focused on physical, but not emotional nourishment um, in the parent-child relationship. So that's kind of hard for us now uh, here to realize, but that how John Bowlby really made a big shift, right, in our understanding that there's much more to child development than just the physical needs. That's right. And some people still talk about attachment as internal working models Mm. of your psychological idea about relationships. But we know now from Alan Shore's work and other neuroscientists that it's much more than that. It's actually the biosocial construction of your brain. Mm. Shore says that attachment is, in essence, the right brain regulation of biological synchronicity between organisms. Ah, a mouthful. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But that's about, you know, it's explaining that your attachment style, and we'll talk about the good stuff shortly, and if we have time, the bad kind of attachment, uh, or less helpful kind of attachment, I should say, Uh, But attachment is really how your brain has learned to interact with others, how how it's your biology, because the brain is integrated with the body, how your biology is going to work when you um, meet others and try to cooperate or communicate with them. So 
and from that statement from Alan Shore about what attachment is and the right brain and you have regulation, biological synchrony all going on here, we're seeing that there's differences, right, and different types of attachments. So this is, I think we're going to get into this a little bit later, how it is formed through those early experiences in life. But even as adults, when we look at adults and how they are attached to other adults, there are different types of attachment. That's right. right. So a, a secure attachment, uh, what's called secure attachment, is an indicator that things went reasonably well, that you got your social biological needs met mm-hmm. in a consistent, responsive manner, enough so that your neurobiology is working pretty well. Hmm. Interesting. But the uh, insecure attachment styles, and there's several of them, indicate that your neurobiology wasn't set up to be so self-regulated and cooperative. It's a little more erratic or mm-hmm. distant from others or anxious. So that that's an indicator that your actual neurobiology was set in a different pattern and a different trajectory than those who have secure attachment. So you talk a lot about that within this chapter, about how important those early experiences are in forming the neurobiology and really help elucidate that those early experiences are so critical in having a healthy neurobiology. And I mean, that is just mind-blowing, you know, really, and helping, I think, adults understand maybe where the source of anxiety or stress is coming from. So it's very enlightening. Right. So as an adult, it's very helpful to know what your favorite attachment orientation is to people. And it may vary by males and females, depending on your relationship with your father versus your mother or grandmother, whoever your caregivers were. And so it's helpful to understand why it is you keep pushing people away. For example, that's a dismissive kind of uh, avoidant attachment. You feel safe in your house when when there are people in it, but they're not in your room. <laughs> you don't want them in the same room, right? Keep them distant, but you want them around, right? And Or you're anxious and you're always worried about being liked or loved or um, feeling safe in the world. And that's another kind of anxious um, attachment. Mm-hmm. And so it's helpful to understand that because then you can start to try to heal yourself in mm-hmm. various ways. Yeah, that's really interesting. So then how is it affecting our children? You know, what can we do to help children develop a secure attachment? So one of the key things that's been studied uh, quite a bit is responsiveness Hmm. and the particular kind of responsiveness. So responsiveness means your child, your baby in particular, is exhibiting a need. And babies do that with by making faces or wiggling, starting to grimace and get it. They show that they're uncomfortable. That's the time to move in because they can't communicate. That That is their communication, right? So you have to be yes. sensitive to that and move in and try to take care of whatever that need is. Again, remembering that babies should be in the womb another 18 months beyond their birth date. And so all those caregiving responses are so critical for how the brain is finishing itself up. It's got another 75% of itself to finish after birth, and this is full-term birth. A lot of kids are born early. So um, it's really critical to be responsive in a way that's kind, that's tender, that's supportive, and not be responsive in the way of, yeah, I see you there, I'm ignoring you, Mm. or I see you there, yeah, stop it, and you hit him or something, Mm. right? That's not the kind of responsiveness we're talking about. We're talking about a mutually responsive kind of orientation. Grazina Kahanska has studied this for 
maybe uh, she's got longitudinal studies for into adolescence now, showing how important it is for the development of morality, of social skills, sociality, and just being a good person. Hmm, interesting. And you talk about it in the chapter about it, this dance between the dyad, between the parent, the mother, and the child. And so this responsivity is sensing the child's needs and responding to those needs and how really this is the child's language, right? That they're unable to articulate words, but it is through expression of their needs and receiving their needs being met, physical touch. This is all communication that's really taking place, Yes, that's a good way to put it. And so the nest, the evolved nest that we talk about is actually providing responsiveness in all its different components, breastfeeding, touch, uh, caring and and holding and playing and interacting and all those things contribute to a, a responsive nest. Hmm, that's interesting. Wonderful. And so then later on in the chapter, you continue to bridge attachment and how the foundation attachment theory and research with Bowlby, but then you take it even further. Can you talk a little bit about the advances in what we know now with attachment theory? Yeah, so if we look across species, we know that some species provide, I mean, all mammal species provide some kind of attachment. Uh, There's uh, the very more limited type is called protective attachment. And this is when the mother provides um, not a personal attachment, but, you know, the warmth and nourishment and protection uh, that... Uh, the baby, the offspring needs to survive. So rabbits have this kind of minimal caregiving system. And uh, I saw a rabbit uh, under our large uh, spruce tree. Uh, there, Well, this actually, it, it was a big raven came by to the spruce tree. It was on the ground uh, hopping towards it. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden this mother rabbit came out and started to chase this raven (laughs) off across the street, all the way across the street. It was like, whoa, (laughs) that's protective attachment. Yes. Yes, that's a great example. I think really helps us understand very clearly what we mean by a protective attachment. Yes. And and so that's not the one that Bowlby focused on. He focused on what I'm calling warmth attachment, which is having this mutually responsive relationship with the caregiver the baby has. And it builds a sense of intersubjectivity, a sense that Hmm. you're not alone in the world, that you can communicate back and forth and resonate with the brain of your caregiver, the limbic resonance. And your social emotion circuitry gets set up properly because your caregiver is signaling love and care and um, honest Uh, communication, and then you are learning to do that back. And so you develop, you know, a very kind of general social intelligence through this warmth attachment. Well, and then you also talk about how it's so important for self-regulation. So I love this definition here when you're talking about broadly speaking, self-regulation is the ability to manage the self within a healthy homeostatic range to achieve goals, including physiological processes, but also intentional actions, right? And even that definition, it just sounds so liberating uh, to be able to have so much control over yourself and to be able to execute that. And so you make the connection, how it is through that warmth attachment that all of that self-regulation is properly formed. That's right. So it's, again, a biosocial construction. So your social experience with your caregiver 
is actually creating the biology that you're going to live with hmm. the rest of your life unless you have some intense therapy to fix it if it's not gone right. Sure, sure. Interesting, right? And then you go on to even talk about uh, not just warmth, but also companionship attachment. And this might be a very new concept for our listeners. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what this type of attachment is. Yes, companionship attachment, that idea comes from Colwyn Trevarthen, a researcher at the University of Edinburgh. He contends that Bowlby's warmth attachment is not enough for mm. the full development of the child's potential. And uh, that means uh, that this con companionship attachment really emphasizes the sharing intentions, so building stories with one another, conversational patterns back and forth, uh, and uh, sharing mutual interests and playing together mm. in some very spontaneous ways. And I call this companionship care, and that's what the Evolved Nest provides. And in the Evolved Nest, of course, it's not just one parent doing this. It's a community of caregivers who are responsive in this kind of way, mm. more of it as companions rather than as, you know, protectors only or um, only uh, warmth providers. So, yeah, I mean, that was really insightful, talking about playful interactions and spontaneous sharing. So you're talking not just about this happening bet within other children, but between the parents and the, the adults and the children, right? I think so many times within our, our Western mentality, we think, well, children are playing together and that's enough, right? But it's really the interaction between the, the parents and the other caretakers and the child and this spontaneous and you go in and talk about how uh, play is, in order to play, you need to feel safe, right? So, That's there. right. So all mammals, young mammals, play when they feel safe and well. Hmm. And so if you see a child who's not playing, that's an indicator. That's a signal that either they don't feel well or they don't feel safe. Oh, interesting. Okay. And well. so then you, if you never get a chance to play much when you're growing up, as an adult, you may um, not be able to play very well. Um, that happened to me. And even uh, adults who don't know play, don't know how to play, they will look at children playing and see it as aggression hmm. often. Hmm. Uh, and so there's, uh, it's been documented in this movie called The War on Kids, how uh, adults get confused about children's playing and with a zero tolerance policies in many schools where you can't play with, pretend even that you have a gun or anything. This one kid had a chicken finger and he pretended to aim it at his classmate and he got suspended from school. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so there's a kind of a, a worrisome aspect that when we don't play as young children, we kind of turn into very prickly um, adults who, <laughs> you know, who can't understand how important play is because it builds the brain in so many ways. Wow. Wow. It's really interesting. And um, you talk about here, right, you have to feel safe, but then, you know, there's stress diminishes play as well. And we, you're saying that play is this amazing metric, really, of very sensitive when things going wrong, you know, play immediately goes down. Um, and on the other hand, you're saying play is robust, right? So when you're feeling well, you almost always play. <laughs> I really love that. Yes. <laughs> and I think it's really important for adults to learn to play if they haven't played. Mm. Uh, 
takes a good companion who who, who uh, helps you feel comfortable, but also makes you feel silly and where you can belly laugh. You know, mm. belly laughing helps all sorts of systems to keep you healthy. And one of those is the vagus nerve, which we haven't brought up, which yes. is part of what gets established well in responsive care. Yes. So the vagus nerve, you do dedicate um, several pages to this and is part of the parasympathetic nervous sense system, which is the rest and digest. But, you know, they're even talking about it in the literature about it's rest, digest and approach now with parasympathetic. So with that approach, meaning that you approach others and have others approach you. And I like how you tie this in directly into parenting, that when the vagus nerve is properly formed, parents go to approach their child and proper bonding takes place. Yeah. Right. And, and sometimes if, if you're a parent who didn't get their vagus nerve well established uh, uh, as a child, and you have a child, you may have some resistance or kind of an aversion to hmm. touching your child, which is something to work on. Hmm. Um, maybe get a dog first. <laughs> or a cat. <laughs> That's a great or idea. Or some kind of pet where you can reset your vagus nerve because it's your vagus nerve. If it's not set properly, it's going to make you not want to be very intimate or close or cuddly. Hmm. Interesting. And it's a great place to start with a pet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Pets are good. Yes, absolutely. So we see that in that the early life then helps form the vagus nerve, which is also really important for social interactions for later in life. That's yeah. right. Yeah. You need that. Your biology needs to work well in order for you to feel relaxed and comfortable around people mm-hmm. and feel that, you know, that you're safe so that you can be cooperative. Hmm. Interesting. So any last um, tips or recommendations you have? I mean, I think the takeaways from this conversation are that the importance of providing that companionship attachment within your family, uh, with your children, and you've articulated that play and spontaneous sharing, uh, joint activities, and um, maybe even shared meaning or co-constructed narratives. Maybe if you could speak a little bit more to that. What do you mean by that um, in the book? (laughs) Well, I have a a good example comes to mind from Colin Trevartha, and he has a video where he shows a premature baby that's on his father's chest because the mother is indisposed after the surgery, uh, C-section. And the babies um, and the father just start to communicate hmm. to each other, just a little grunting and, hmm, 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 hmm. Wow. And then the father gets distracted for a moment, and the baby goes, hmm. <gasps> oh, how interesting. Mm. Mm. (laughs) expecting a response so we are ready we are born ready for social interaction uh that kind of being held in the arms of your loved one in a social way as well as physically Mm -hmm. you know that we are ready our spirits are ready for that immersion and companionship and i think uh, we all can relearn that throughout our life if that's been missing. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of loneliness in the United States Mm, now among adults, which is very unhealthy physically, mentally, and spiritually. And so um, moving ourselves into groups and getting comfortable being with other people is something we might need to work on if we're not used to it. 
but we can rebuild our sense of feeling comfortable with others, and especially in a diverse society with people with different cultural backgrounds and different ways of interacting physically and how close you stand to somebody and, <laughs> you know, if you touch them or not and all those things, you sort of have to get used to feeling a little uncomfortable to become multiculturally adept. Hmm. But we can learn that even um, little by little, taking small steps, finding a friend, finding a group that's going to be supportive and hanging out with them. Yeah, that's a wonderful, wonderful tip. And you talk about that, about social pleasure. And so that is just a wonderful tip for all of us to be able to then act on that, of how we can um, reignite or refoster or maybe maybe for the first time experience pleasure in a social setting amongst trusted friends. And as uh, Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood said, I like you just the way you are. How nice. And that's what you need to feel. The baby needs to feel that when they're born and growing up in the family. But we need to each feel that too. So we have to find the groups and friends that help us, that communicate that to us. Oh, yeah. That's wonderful. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Nyberg, for joining us again. And we look forward to um, our next conversation.